Revelation chapter 3. Now, Father, as we begin our time of study in your word, we ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would touch our hearts, help us to understand what the Spirit is saying to each person here, for truly, there's no accidents. You have brought us together for a reason, a divine reason. You have a word for us, something to correct us or to commend us about or to encourage or comfort. Help us to hear it and put it into a practice and be blessed. In Christ's name, amen. When I was in Bible college many years ago now, spent the summer as a missionary in the Philippines. Every day was an adventure, traveling tropical, rural areas there. Uh, I was a member of a small team, and we were evangelizing through the Philippines. One morning, our leader told us we'd be doing some practical serving, not evangelizing or preaching, but actually just being some help at a refugee camp there in the middle of one of the islands there in the Philippines. Uh, he told us, oh, you don't need to bring your Bible today. And, and right as we were leaving the hut, I just thought, you know what, I'm going to bring my Bible just in case. Well, we arrived at the crowded compound. I was greeted by a Filipino gentleman. Uh, he singled me out, welcomed me, told me that they were really expecting my arrival and began to escort me away from the group as I looked at everybody with a big confused look on my face. Uh, we came to the center of the camp. There was an ornate Buddhist temple, and he took me inside. Shrines and candles and incense and statues and monks and chanting. It's really a bizarre place. To find myself out of nowhere, he took me to where the Buddhist priest sat. He was ornately robed and was sitting in a high back chair. He looked very impressive and important, and I was seated directly in front of him. Smiles, was cordially greeted, and the translator began. His reverence is eagerly awaiting your arrival and very excited what you have to tell him. <laughs> okay, there was dead silence, and the translator said to me again and gestured, please, tell him. I was dumbfounded. I had nobody to ask, why, or why, what, what's happening here? So I looked down in my lap, and there was a Bible. I opened to John 10, and I read, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate, whoever enters through me will be saved. And I looked up, and I said, well, I've come to tell you about Jesus Christ, the true and only door to eternal life. He looked surprised. <laughs> then a very dynamic uh, conversation ensued. Uh, the gospel was shared, and uh, the translator did a great job following me verse by verse as I flipped throughout the pages of the scripture. And about an hour after a really good conversation, uh, 
Another American man arrived in the compound who turned out to be the real person they were expecting. <laughs> and apparently he had some important information for the priest there in the Buddhist temple. So with a big smile, I was escorted off the platform <laughs> and the other guy came in with the information. But alas, it was too late. God had already opened the door of opportunity. And by God's good grace, I was able to walk through an open door and preach the gospel. The gospel was heard by somebody who had charge of the entire refugee camp spiritual lives. And they heard the gospel in their own language and God's mission was accomplished. Now, the letter to the sixth church of the seven here addressed in the book of Revelation to the ancient church with the contemporary name, the church at Philadelphia, this uh, letter has the idea as its major theme that the Lord opens a door of opportunity. The Lord Jesus will tell this little church, I have opened a door of opportunity for you and no one can do a thing to close that door. This morning we're going to hear more about that as we hear what the Spirit has to say to the church in Philadelphia. Verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so with that reading, we're going to consider and reflect on the truths found here to this uh, church, the local congregation, at a place, and the only difference is how you say it in the Greek, Philadelphia. It's the same word as Philadelphia, brotherly love. So slide one will show you the churches uh, to whom will our, this letter is written. They are the lucky ones, the blessed ones, who are going to hear about how that world ends. First, it's to these Christians who lived in what is now modern-day uh, Turkey. And so it begins the revelation in Patmos on the island there, and then it goes in a clockwise direction from Ephesus, Ephesus rather, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and now we're at Philadelphia. Next week, it will be Laodicea. 
And the Lord calls these, if you need a little bit of context, which you do, the Lord calls them the seven because they perfectly reveal the strengths and weaknesses of every church that ever existed so that when the Lord is dealing with anything uh, to do with them, he's dealing with us. And so they perfectly reflect issues, strengths, and weaknesses, as I said, that go on in the church today. And then after chapters 2 and 3 with a word uh, to the church, then he tells us how the end of the world will happen from chapters 4 through the end to 22. Now we're following a simple outline here. The Lord himself in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 19 gives the outline of the book. It's very easy. He tells John, now write what you just saw, a description of me, because the book is about Christ revealing Christ. Chapter 1. Then he says, now let's talk about the things that are now, today, the church age, when the church is doing her thing in the world from the day of Pentecost until the day the Lord comes for her and takes her to be with him. That would be chapters 2 and 3, the things that are now. When he's done with chapter 3 in the seven churches, he moves to chapter 4, and the first line of chapter 4 is, come up here, open door in heaven, let me show you now the things that come after this. After the seven churches are done and finished, the judgment that we know as the beast, the world dictator, the mark of the beast, 666, Armageddon, and all of those terrible plagues, they go on from chapter 6 through chapters 19. But for today, we are in what is now, and that would be the age of grace. When the church is on the earth, and if you want to compare it to the ark, Noah's ark, the door's open, and Noah is saying, come on in before the judgment comes. And Jesus said that's a really apt prophetic description of the coming of the Lord at the end of the age. And so that's the future. We're going to take a look uh, now. Thank you for that slide. We're going to take a look at the greeting first. You know, it follows a nice little pattern. It's made it easy for our conversations on Sunday. First, a greeting and a description of himself that kind of fits the church's particular need. Then there's a commendation for what they're doing right. Some churches don't get that. A and then there's a correction for what they're doing wrong. And some churches don't get that, which is this church, which is nice. And a commitment, not this church, the rock, but <laughs> I meant this church that we're speaking about, which we all think, you know, when you read commentaries about the church at Philadelphia, it's surprising whoever you're reading just thinks it describes their denomination. You know, so the Presbyterians think the Church of Philadelphia really represents the Presbyterians. And then the Baptists say, well, it sounds like a Baptist fellowship, you know, and then I was thinking, uh on -uh, the Calvary Chapel, Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, there's some good things to be said about this church, and uh, we're going to take a look at it. And the Lord always ends on an up note, a commitment to bless those who take his words to heart. So first, the greeting. We find that it's a greeting with an oh-so-familiar name, Philadelphia, brotherly love, 
Uh, a word that's found six times in the New Testament, just as it is, only once as a city, but five other times as a command to love one another. It's pretty important. First John chapter 3, verse 14 says, do you want to know who's saved? Well, he who loves his brother. When you love Christians and the work of God, and the work of God in your brother and sister, you are showing evidence that you are saved. Uh, but it's not enough to just love God and love our brothers. We must love the lost world around us. Jesus said, you know, the reason I came was to seek and save the lost. And some have said on the same errand, he has sent our church. When someone has the love of God poured out by the Holy Spirit in your heart, you must share the same compassion that our Lord had for others, especially those who are down and out and in need of the gospel. Now, the church at Philadelphia had a heart for the lost, and the Lord had set before them this incredible open door. Now, interestingly, just something about Philadelphia to help you understand the little connection in the letter, Philadelphia was known as the open door because it commanded one of the greatest highways of the world. It connected Europe to the Far East, and the Romans saw this as an opportunity, an open door of opportunity, to what was called Hellenize, or to make Greek, the entire uh, Asian world. And so what they would do is to spread the Greek language, Greek culture, Greek lifestyle, Greek uh, traditions and philosophies and gods and all of that was an open door there in Philadelphia because of the way the highway ran right through that. But the Christians who found themselves born again and attending a little local assembly thought, open door, yeah, God has placed in front of us an open door, not to Hellenize the world, to make it Greek, but to evangelize the world and make it saved. And so this is kind of what the Lord is playing out here in this letter and kind of a play on words that we wouldn't know about because we're unfamiliar with the nickname open door for that city. So that's the city. Let's look at the greeting. It's a good one. He uses two words, and he says, I'm holy and I'm true. An interesting combination that really says this. I'm the Lord. I am God. Apart from me, there is no other. So the word holy, when the Lord says holy, it is the Lord who is always described as the holy one. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 25 to whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One. This is now Jesus putting this title onto himself. Yahweh, or Jehovah, the Old Testament name for God, is now Jesus saying, I am he. And so he is saying, I am the Lord. The word holy is what sets God apart. The word in the Greek, agios, it means separated. So when you say God is separated, he's saying he's separated from us in moral purity, in divine wisdom, in omniscience, in omnipotent, and omnipresent. He's just different. He's completely different and separated from sin or fallenness or flaw 
or weakness. And, and it is by his spirit that he is making us, like him, holy, separated out of this world from sin, separated to him, you see. So things associated with God become holy because he's holy. And then with holy, he says, I'm holy, I'm the Lord, and I'm true. Two words in the Greek for true. The first one is true as compared to error. The second one is true as compared to counterfeit or fake. It's the latter. The one I just mentioned is the one he's using. So he's saying, I, Jesus Christ, am God. And apart from me, there is no other. I am the genuine God. Now, he's saying this because there in Philadelphia, on every corner, were, they called it Little Athens because they just had a little Greek temple on every corner with their pillars, which will be alluded to later. And, and there were, they were just everywhere. So he's saying, listen, I'm the true and living God. I'm the real thing. I'm not the counterfeit. This is who is addressing them. And therefore, the following statement makes a lot of sense. He says, I hold the key to David, of David, rather. Now, this phrase, it comes from Isaiah 22. That means Jesus has the key to the storehouse of heaven's treasures and has the authority to open and admit or close and refuse. Now, back in, let me give you a little background for the key of David. It's interesting. Back in the day of King Hezekiah, uh, the long story short is King Hezekiah had this corrupt chief of staff. His name was Shebna. Now, he was embezzling and amassing his own little fortune from the temple treasuries. He was found out and caught. And God says to him there in Isaiah, in God's unique way of speaking. He says there in Isaiah chapter 22 and verse 18, he says, I'm going to take him, that is Shebna, and whirl him around like a discus and toss him into a far country. That's Isaiah 22 and verse 18. Apparently, I'll translate that. For, I am the Lord and I'm really not happy with you. <laughs> Now, the Lord replaces Shebna after he tosses him out with a godly man, Eliakim, who God says, and here's our line, I will give him the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. So the Lord is saying that really is a picture of who I am. I take out the bad guy. I'm replaced. I hold the key to the doorway into heaven's treasures. And not only that, it's not just about the treasures and having the only key to open it up to us. He has the authority to escort you in, to admit, and he has the authority to lock that door and say, refuse right to entry. And that's what he means there when he tells them, I hold the key of David. So in light of that, He's saying this then as we go into the commendation of what they're doing right. He says, I'm the sovereign Lord, the true and living God, who's in charge of the storehouse of the heavenly treasures, the one with the key to let people in and out of heaven itself. He's the one who goes before you and he's making opportunities for you. So what kind of confidence comes 
when the Christian who's walking faithfully with God hears that this God is the one who has placed before you some opportunities. When you connect the dots like that, what confidence, boldness, hope, optimism, excitement, adventure can flood your soul because it's just not random chance that this thing has presented itself before me or that I find myself with these resources or in this place or on this platform. But he says, no, it was me, the living God who spins the planet in space. I'm the one who puts you there. I'm the one who lets you see the need. I'm the one who says, walk through this door as I open it up. And when I open, mind you, as God, nobody's going to shut that door. And what I like, too, is he says, you know, I've shut doors that you probably only know about when you get to heaven. I've protected you. I close doors and nobody's going to open them. And so here's the commendation, what they're doing right. So point number two, let me paraphrase. He says, I, I know your good works, your deeds, and see, it's me who has given you this open door that no one can shut. You don't have the big numbers. I know that you're weak. You don't have the big finances. You're weak, but you keep my word, two things. You keep my word and you honor me. You haven't denied my name. So I'm holding the door of opportunity wide open in front of you. Have at it. No one can stop you. Walk through the door and see what I can do. Or better yet, see what we can do. We're co-laborers with Christ. So now we have three things in your text that faithful Christians get to look forward to. Three things are opportunity. Why don't you say them with me? Opportunity. What? <laughs> it's not that hard of a word. Opportunity. Opportunity. Very good. <laughs> Vindication. Vindication. And rescue. rescue. These are the three things that attend faithful Christians. Christians who don't deny him and obey his word. Those are the two things that made him very happy. So happy he had nothing bad to say about the whole church. So he says, when you live like that, Christian, there are three things that you will always find in your life. The first one, opportunity. Here we have the weakest church. Scholars say it may have been the smallest of the seven, yet they were doing the most uh, wonderful things, the most tremendous opportunities because they obeyed the word and they didn't deny him. And when I say not to deny the Lord, it's not just here. Not just with your lips, but in life. You can deny him with your life and profess him with your lips. But they were not dishonoring him with their lips or by their lifestyle. Now, what do we see first? We see they have the spirit. They're, the Lord says, look, I know you're weak. You don't have a lot of resources. You know what? You don't need resources. You need me by my spirit. Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 6. It's not by might, not by power, not by uh, people in the pews, not by big numbers, not by mega church, not by finances, not, not, not by any of these things. It's by my spirit. The Lord can use numbers and he can use finances, but uh, it's a foolish thing to look and say, it's because of this that the blessing comes. 
It's always because of the Lord. He uses the things, and we always look at that and go, wow, you know, it's because they're a mega church or because, you know, they're in an affluent neighborhood, and therefore they get a lot of resources. And the Lord says, look, let me show the whole world something and use this weak church that had nothing, and I'm going to open a door of opportunity, and they're going to do great things. Now, remember I told you that the, the, the map showed... He names them in Revelation that they go clockwise. So scholars say chapter 1 of Revelation is prophetic. It says these are the words of the prophecy of this book. Now you'll notice that they go from, as I told you, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. It's a little bit more round on most maps, and so it's clockwise. So scholars say this that not only were they legitimate historical congregations, but they also represent a prophetic time that really they represent a time in church history that's very much like their church. So in other words, the first church is the first century, first and second centuries, when the apostles had just died off of the scene. Their doctrine was right on, but their love for Jesus had grown dim. And so they'll say that's years 100 to 200. And then you could go all the way around the clock. When you get to Philadelphia, you get to the great awakening of the missionary movement of the 1700s and the 1800s called the Great Missionary Awakening, where a great door of opportunity was opened by the Lord Jesus Christ to, to men and women who had nothing, and they evangelized the world. Modern missions comes from a time in the church's history, and let's call it Philadelphia, where they had very little compared to modern times. It's, it's just unbelievable. People like William Carey, living in the late 1700s, early 1800s. He's the father of modern missions. Now, can you imagine, here he is, he's working in a cobbler shop, a very modest one. He takes some shoe leather, he makes a globe, and he starts, thank you for the map. He makes a globe and starts praying around the globe out of his shoe leather for the world. And he says, Lord, that's, I see an opportunity. William Carey goes to the heart of India he translates the Bible into Sanskrit, into languages, three different languages he learns himself. With no planes, no modern medicine, no technology, no funding. He has nothing compared to what we have. He didn't go by plane. He didn't get there and he check his iPhone for messages. <laughs> this guy, thousands of people went through the missionary agency he established, Adoniram Judson, 1788 to 1850. Baptist missionary, first North American Protestant missionary in Burma. Uh, Twelve years there to see 18 converts, and by the time he died, he'd established 100 churches with 8,000 members. Hudson Taylor, 1800s. He goes from England to China, learns Chinese, he's a doctor, 
translates the Bible into Chinese and lives there 51 years, he establishes 350 missions outposts, 125 schools. Some of them are still there today. Schools established in the 1800s by this one man. I know that you're weak and I've laid a door of opportunity before you. I've opened the door, church of the great awakening. And, and hundreds of men and women with very little D.L. Moody, George Whitefield, Charles Spurgeon, John Wesley, they started entire movements. Denominations are, are, are traced back to people like Spurgeon and Wesley. Just this one weak little church with, with half of what we have or, or, or less than that even. It's amazing. One person wrote, a relatively few devoted men and women against Herculean odds left their homeland to spread the gospel across the globe. They learned new languages, translated the Bible into foreign tongues, crossed entire oceans, traversed continents, cut their way through jungles filled with deadly animals and deadly disease and deadly adversaries of the humankind. They really had nothing but a burden and a Bible and an open door that God placed before them and no one was able to shut it and the world was evangelized. That's just amazing. And of course, the Lord didn't stop in the 1700s or the 1800s. He didn't stop with the original church there in modern day Turkey, but this has been his MO always. Why, did, why do you suppose he let the world get established with the gospel in the 1700s and the 1800s, and not us. We are benefiting from their labors. We go to where they already established. Why did he do that? Why didn't he just wait until we had all the money and all the planes and all the internet and everything that we could do? He says, you know what? I don't need any of that stuff. I need a godly man and a godly woman. I fill them with my spirit. I'll open a door. You watch. They'll walk through it and nobody can shut it. I don't care that there are no planes. I don't care there's no cell phones, no computers. I don't care that they don't even have penicillin to protect them. I don't need any of that. Watch what I can do with five loaves of barley and two little fish. This has been his way the whole time. Paul the Apostle, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and he says, you know what? I get it. It's not about my strength or my resources or my academic training. It's about my weakness because my weakness showcases the strength and power of God. He says, therefore, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, therefore I delight in weakness and in insults and in persecution in difficulties, in sickness, when I'm down and out and the whole world can see there's no way that happened except by the grace and power of God. God says, exactly. That's when I come in and the Lord speaks to Paul in that verse and says, my power is made perfect through your weakness. And we're running around, we hate our weakness. The Lord's saying that is exactly, just bring your little weak heart and life to me. And he tells this church, you're weak, I get it, but watch this. And he opens the door, and they walk through. 
by the grace of God. Why can't we see those doors? He says, I've opened it in front of every faithful Christian. Why? Because we think it's an open door for us. Oh, it's a job for me. It's a house for me. It's resources for me. It's a platform for me. Yes, it is, partially, but God doesn't do anything in your life without first thinking, how does this affect his kingdom? How does this help him in what he's doing? So we're not looking at it as if, is this a platform for God? Did he place me in this office next to him? Did he give me this thing so that I could share the gospel? Did he allow these resources to come to me just to get for my personal gain? Or is he counting on me to further his kingdom? If, if you can't see the door of opportunity, then you're not going to walk through a door of opportunity. And you know how it first comes? It comes from feeling a need. You know, you might have found yourself like, wow, how did I get to be quarterback of the New York Jets? Please, come on. You know? So he's thinking, a Christian, gospel, world, microphone, evangelization, heaven and hell. I'm going to write John 3.16 underneath my eyes. So he writes John 3.16, John 3.16, and he gets eight million Google hits. What does John 3.16 mean? Why? Because he said, I see a door of opportunity. You think God just wants this kid to make millions of dollars and just, you know, play a game with pig leather, you know, throw it around. Oh, God's like, yes, you did it, man. He gets it. He sees past the circumstance and into faith. What does God want from me here? How could I be a blessing? You're going to start seeing open doors. Oh, I went to a talent uh, contest at a high school with a kid from the youth group, very talented. And they sang in front of a packed hundreds of people. And they sang a worldly song. And afterwards, I said, you did so good. That was amazing. They're very gifted. Did it cross your mind to just do a kind of edgy, don't have to be a corny, cheesy Christian song, but maybe something that, that caused people to say, hey, wow, look at that. That kid's good. But I heard something different. What, what? Did it cross your mind that God put you at your school, put you in your neighborhood, put you into that family, sat you at that table, put you in that carpool? Whatever he's doing, he's thinking, please, do you, can you just make the next step in your mind that why I would put you here or give you this or give you this ability? It's for him. I place before you an open door. Well, I spent way too much time on that. <laughs> the next point, he says, is all faithful Christians get vindication. They're in verse 9. Now, now, the troublemakers of that region, unfortunately, were unbelieving Jews. Uh, they were jealous. They said, you know, you Christians have hijacked Judaism. You know, the Psalms are ours. You're, you're singing, your little kids are singing, Father Abraham had many sons, and I, I'm one of them. Excuse me, no, you're not. You're a Gentile. No fair. They didn't like 
the Christians. So they persecuted them. They slandered them. They were a big problem there. And the Lord says, you know what? They call themselves Jews. We've been through this before in a recent letter. But they're not really Jews. If they were, they would uh, believe like Abraham believed. Abraham wasn't about slandering and killing God's people. So they're not really, they may be related physically, but they're more when they get together, which is the word synagogue, means to gather together. When they get together, it's more about something diabolical than something uh, worthy of praise to God. And so he says, here's what he says generally. Here's the idea for us, all right? He's saying, everyone who opposes you because of your faith in me, who mock you, persecute you, slander you, one day they'll see the error of their way and show honor and acknowledge that you were in the right and that you are loved by me. Here's the definition of vindication. And the Lord says, vindication is your legacy as a believer. In other words, in the life to come, everything will be revealed for who said what, who injured who, who got persecuted, and you will be vindicated. Not in a general way, but in a literal, real way. Every martyr will meet his murderer. Every slandered one will meet their slanderer. Everyone taken from, everyone who's had something taken from them will meet the one who took it from them. Everyone injured will meet their injurer. As it would seem, it's not just Jesus is Lord that every tongue will confess, but it's also they will confess that Jesus loved his people. A lot of people got persecuted in this life, but in the end, if they don't repent, if they repent, they become one of us, forgiven. But if they die in that condition, they will have to face the people and they will say, wow, you were right. He loved you, and I persecuted somebody God loved. That's your verse that says that. Now, he goes on to say, not only do faithful Christians uh, get doors of opportunity and future vindication, he says you'll be rescued from the hour of tribulation. Friends, if you want proof text that we do not go through chapters 6 through 19 of Revelation, then it would be this one. Because he's speaking to the church, and he says, and I quote, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole earth to test those who live on the earth. Well, first of all, Jesus speaks of this time and calls it great tribulation. That's where we get the name. The Lord says in Matthew 24, For then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. There will be seven seals opened up and seven trumpets of judgment and seven bowls of God's wrath and the earth will barely survive. Matthew 24 and verse 22, If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, Jesus said, but for the sake of God's people... Those days will be shortened. God's people, meaning those who pass the test. It's called a test for a reason. We are removed. The church is done and over. 
The judgments fall as a test to expose everybody for who they are. This is how you pass the test. You repent and you become a tribulation saint. You will be martyred because you cannot buy or sell or live unless you take the mark of the beast. And anybody who does take the mark of the beast ends up in the lake of fire. So you have to resist. And so he says, I'm going to spare you from that. The word from means from having to go through it, from out of it, not in or through. He could have used two other words. He says, I will spare you from that hour that will come upon those, and here I quote, who dwell on the earth. That phrase, to live on the earth or to dwell on the earth, is better, and it it is used nine times in Revelation and all of unbelievers under God's wrath. That is more than those who dwell on the earth. It's, it's, a, it's their problem. They dwell on the earth. They live for today. They live with the world as their final authority. They live for the world. That's what that phrase means. How about us? We're never described as those who dwell on the earth. We're always described as foreigners. Philippians chapter 3, citizens of heaven. Strangers here. We do not dwell, settle down, and this is our life. That isn't it for believers. And so that's another reason why commentators say, look, he's going to spare us from what is called the great tribulation. Now, I want to quickly... We got a couple minutes here. Uh, I just want to quickly remind you that the Lord's return has two very different descriptions of the same event. Now, here's a dilemma. You can't have it both ways unless there are two events. Number one, the Lord says, when I come, it'll be just a regular day. Nobody will be suspecting it. Uh, there'll be garden parties, weddings, people will be getting married Engagement announcements, you'll be getting save the date, a little, little cute picture. There'll be Friday nights and Saturday nights at downtown 4th Street and little lights lit up and you'll be eating and drinking and then boom. One from the table goes, one at the party goes, one stays. That's what he says. Well, how is that possible if he comes for us at the end of the tribulation? When a third of the earth is on fire, the sun, moon, and stars are out of order. Rivers of blood, the ten plagues from Egypt on steroids. Where, seriously, you're going to get saved the date. <laughs> yeah. Oh, whoops, a star was falling, a mountain crashing into the sea. Yeah, Armageddon's happening. Yeah, but, you know, Friday night, we're going to meet for drinks. Out on, you know, I don't think so. It's impossible. You have to have two different scenarios. The Lord comes, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel. The dead who have died in Christ will get their bodies. We who are alive and remain will be caught up where the word rapture comes from the Latin raptus. To be snatched away, to meet the Lord in the air. That's the other problem. Zechariah 14 says when he returns, he comes and touches his feet to the Mount of Olives. And Zechariah 14 says he comes with us, his saints, 
that's a problem. Because Paul says we go up to meet him in the air. How can the two both be true? He comes first for his church, chapters 2 and 3. He takes us away. Chapters 4 through 22 are now free to start. What an encouraging thing. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And so we see faithful Christians go about their Christian service uh, knowing the Almighty God's opening doors for them. They will be one day fully vindicated and they needn't worry about the great tribulation, chapters 6 through 19, that are coming because he just said, you're not going through that. I'm keeping you from it. And they would really be concerned because they're the ones who are going to read chapters 6 through 19 right after they're done with their letter. So now, ordinarily, we would be at the correction time, but there's nothing to correct. Can you imagine the Lord coming to you and saying, hey, I've just surveyed your entire life. Good job. Should I do anything differently, Lord? Nope. Any, any areas you'd wish to point out and say I need to grow? No. Nope. Seriously. <laughs> and what was that? Moral perfection? No, we sin. Anybody who says they don't sin is a liar. First John 1, 9, 8. Sorry. Yeah, I don't want to lie about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so what does he mean by that? He means, he says, you're walking with me in faith. You haven't dishonored me by lips or lifestyle. Let's take a look at this. I've run out of time, but we can comment on verse 13. He says, a final point, number three, exhortation. So he says, I have nothing bad to say, but I do warn you. He says, Jesus, I'm coming quickly. And by the way, the word soon and quickly is to be understood as something uh, which is sudden and unexpected, not necessarily immediate. So there is an answer for you. How could he say that? Um, and it's been such a long time. He says to them, hold on to what you have. Now, that's pretty clear. We've seen what they have. Evangelistic opportunity. I've set you an open door. Hold on to that. Reliance on God. You have little strength and you're dependent on me. Hold on to that. And lastly, faithfulness to Jesus. You've kept my word and you've not denied my name. Hold on to that. Keep doing that. Don't let anybody take that from you. And then he says, don't let them steal your crown. Now, nobody can steal away your salvation. It's not something you can earn. But the Lord does talk about stewardship and reward for faithful stewardship. And 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, talk about that. And the... And the um, the sobering thought that we can get to heaven but not be rewarded, that we lose reward, that you, in, in fact, had a saving relationship with God, but you just blew it away. You were unfaithful but saved, weak and, and weak in the wrong way. And so he says, don't let someone take away your reward because that will be a distinct possibility uh, Commentator Havner said, you are in no greater danger from anyone or anything than from yourself. Listen, the Lord said about you and me. He said, you're in my hand. Nobody can snatch you from my hand. Then he said, you're in the Father's hands. Father's greater than all. 
So he's just saying, look, you're safe and secure with me. Nobody's going to touch you. But what about you? What about your own deceitful heart? By the power of the Holy Spirit, you've got to keep that beast in check. He says those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature. You must count that thing constantly, day in and day out, as dead. What did he say to us? You want to be my disciple? Three things you got to do. Get used to telling yourself no all day long. Deny yourself. Then he says, you've got to die to things inconsistent with God's will. Pick up your cross. And then you've got to stay really close to me. That's the fight. I mean, did you talk to him today? Did you really worship or did your head get a lot of exercise this way? You know, just bowing your head. I mean, it, prayer is more than just closing your eyes and shutting, shutting down and bowing your head. Or however, I'm trying to explain it there. There are people, lots of people today, unfortunately, who came to church that did not go to church. Like not your body being here. Did you engage? Did you worship? Did you really? Seriously, did you really come in contact with the living God? Or did you go to church? There's a big difference. There's a big difference. And so he closes, as usual, with some good news. A lot of symbolism. Let's talk about it. He says, first of all, you'll be in God's temple, and you'll be a pillar there, and you'll never leave. Now, symbolic language, Philadelphia was leveled a couple times by earthquakes. It was right on a fault line. And so there was a lot of falling rock, and the, the pillars in all of those temples were constantly coming down. And so the Lord is kind of making a play here by saying, you know, when you get to heaven, you're going to be a pillar. And, and you're not going to be fearful and having to leave and run around every time there's a little hiccup. It's not like that in heaven. And by the way, there is no temple in heaven. So he's talking, Revelation chapter 21 and verse 22. John says, I looked around. I didn't see a temple because the Lord God and Jesus Christ was the temple. So in heaven, he's saying, you know what? You have, this is the point. There's peace, there's security and stability and your backsliding tendency will be healed. When he says you won't be leaving, you know the hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love? You won't be singing that anymore. Unfortunately, we'll change the words to something else <laughs> because he says you won't going to be prone to wander because you're not leaving the place. You're not leaving. Now, and here, here's finish up. He gives us three new names that we bear. Ancient cities often honored great leaders by erecting pillars with their names inscribed on them. God's pillars are not made of stone because there's no temple in the heavenly city. We are the pillars who bear his name. So the idea that we are written upon means we bear his name. We reflect these three things uh, as opposed to a physical sense. All right? The three names that we bear. He doesn't write on us, okay? We bear them, all right? Number one, the name of God the Father. The idea here is that we will reflect God, God's character. The Spirit is in your heart and life right now. He's working to make you godly. That will be 
fully completed and you will bear his image. As holy as he is, you will be holy. Compassionate, patient, kind and loving. That will be, that's the essence of number one. He says, you're going to be like God because you will bear his moral character. Number two, he says, the name of the city, you will reflect that. And then Jesus adds, the city that comes down from heaven. And in Revelation 21 and 22, we find out that it's described as a bride dressed and prepared for her husband. So the idea there in number two is is that we reflect loving intimacy, someone captured by the beauty and goodness of another and longing to be with him or her, that there's this, we reflect God's love. That's the second point. And then thirdly, he says, you will bear Jesus' new name. Jesus gets a new name. Why? Well, the angel told Mary the first time, uh, give him the name Jesus. Yahweh is salvation. For he shall save his people from their sins. Been there, done that. Now it's a new age. He's not bearing our sins anymore because they've been born. He has a new task. And we, nobody knows what that task is. But he says, you will share it with me. You will reflect that. Just as my people who worked with me to bring the gospel to the earth. This brings salvation. The name of Jesus. God can save you. You will be involved in that same way with Jesus' new name in a new phase, in a new kingdom, but you will again reflect that because you will be connected to him in love. Let's pray together. Now, Heavenly Father, we just stop to kind of digest some of that beautiful information. It sets our hearts free. We're thankful for communion time to remember the foundation for all of those promises without what you did on the cross in bearing our sins. None of these promises would be meaningful. So thank you, Father, for a chance to reflect on what you did on the cross through Christ our Lord. May you prepare our hearts now as we receive these symbols of your broken body and the blood you shed on our behalf in Christ's name. Amen.